I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the Gardening Advice Team. Today we're looking to Wales and the start of the flower show season. And we're taking a Darwinian approach to gardening, discussing the most blight-resistant potatoes. But first, we're going to explore the wonderful Wisley Herbarium to find out about the tubers that sailed on the HMS Beagle alongside Mr Darwin himself. Our herbarium is the UK's largest plant library dedicated to ornamental garden plants. It's an invaluable resource to a vast range of horticulturists, scientists and researchers, and even artists. Its catalogue contains some amazing and fascinating plants with equally intriguing histories. We went to meet the team to learn more about the collection and the fight to preserve it for generations to come. My name is Mandeep Komatharu and I work as a herbarium digitisation technician based here in Wisley. You can say a herbarium is basically a museum, but it's the museum of plants. So, you know, when you were little, you'll just take a pluck of lava from the garden and you place in the book. And, you know, after a few days, you'll see a very thin fragment of that. And it's just basically a bigger collection. They are dried and pressed plant specimens and they actually stay with us for a good couple of hundreds of years. They are not only they're beautiful to look at but they contain important information because they have the DNA material in it which helps with the scientific research in the future. It's not only just the students but it's for any of the plant enthusiasts in throughout the world who don't get the opportunity to travel much and they can't see the wide array of plants that we have in the world but then in the herbarium you got plants from all over the world. I think somebody who's come from India and started my journey literally finishing her degree and starting my career in botany, it was amazing to see the very, very earliest uh, specimen in the herbarium and the way it was preserved. 
So for me, it will always be the highlight, the lavender that we have in the herbarium. It kind of signifies the importance and all the exciting bits that people have been to. And then now recently about the Darwin potato that we have discovered. And I was around when it was discovered. Barry, our herbarium assistant, discovered it. And I think I was just hiding in one corner doing digitization. And suddenly everybody started making exclamations like, what's, oh, you know, it can't be. Oh, really? It is? And um, the keeper of the herbarium finally just gone through a few of the books and Barry said, no, it, it looks like it's the actual Darwin potato. I'm Yvette Harvey. I'm the keeper of the herbarium. So I'm essentially a museum curator. I curate a collection of 87,600 dried plant specimens that have been mounted on pieces of paper and put into cabinets. In front of us here, I've got a selection of specimens to look at. Some are quite historic, but some are really quite modern and they all have interesting stories attached to them. In just 2013, on the 17th of December, I believe it was a cold but dry day, according to Barry, at 3.30 in the afternoon, Barry Phillips, one of our wonderful plant collectors, was rifling through the collection looking for something and came across a potato. It, It wasn't any old potato. It was one of these complete eureka moments where he shrieked and rushed upstairs to tell John David, the head of our taxonomy unit, he'd discovered a potato that had been collected by Charles Darwin. And if you just look at the label, it says that it was collected in the Chonos Archipelago in December 1834. The specimen itself covers the entire sheet from the base to the tip. And it's really, it's the growing point above the ground. So we don't actually have any of the potatoes. But what we do have with this specimen is a flowers. And this is quite rare because Darwin's main herbarium is held in Cambridge University Herbarium. And the curator, Dr Lauren Gardner, looks after over a thousand Darwin specimens. And she actually has two specimens of our potato. But if you look at their specimens, they don't include flowers. Of course, I might be biased, but I do think we've got the best one. Now, one of the strengths of the collection is that we maintain in it cultivars that have come and gone in fashion. And so, for instance, the Black Arrow was an absolute sensation in the 2004 Chelsea Flower Show. So much so that the Ruffham Nursery, where it came from, had a queue outside and there was near fisticuffs for people to get their hands on a new plant. We managed to get a specimen, so we beat the queue, and we've preserved it. We've, of course, we've colour charted it, so we've got a great record of the precise colours that were on using the RHS colour chart. The interesting thing now is that if you look at the current plant finder, the plant is no longer available. So it's already what you might call extinct. But we, of course, have a specimen of it, and so we've got a genetic record of it. For me personally, I quite enjoy the specimen because, of of course, delphiniums are the most beautiful blues that you can imagine. But this is quite odd because it's black and it really is just almost black. So to have something that's black is quite unusual. Hello, I'm Saskia. I, I work in the herbarium and I'm about to go and collect a specimen and we're going to show how we press it. So this is a very large shrub or small tree. I can't collect the whole plant, obviously. So this is where we're trying to get a specimen that represents the plant. So I will have a photograph of the whole plant, how high it is. So I usually measure it. And here's its label. So it's Pittosporum tenuifolium. Silver sheen is its cultivar name. 
So I'm just going to collect a cutting. So that'll show me all the colours of the stem, all the way down to the older stem and the newer stem and the leaves. So there are no flowers at this time of the year, which is also a factor. This is a winter example of winter foliage. <laughs> What I didn't do was write down the label information, but that's on my photograph. So we have our specimen, we've brought it into the herbarium. We, we set up a press, which consists of a, two hard boards, and then the, the specimens built, are built up in between those hard boards. So I'm going to find my boards. And then we start to build this up. First of all, we put some corrugated cardboards down. After the cardboards goes a double blotter. This is going to take away any moisture that's in the leaves and stems and start the drying process. Also, I need a label. That's going to have the date, the name, where I found it, and some of the colours. We note down the colours of the plant because that doesn't last in the press. Obviously, when it dries, it changes colour. So let me get the colour chart and we'll do that. So I'm looking at the stem. Usually I look at the side which faces the sun, which quite often is slightly different to the one away from the sun. So here we go. We're actually in the dark reds. It takes a bit of a fiddle and it's not always exact. I'm quite happy with that actually. So we've got a greyish reddish brown 200B. This is using the RHS colour chart. And then we take another blotter and we spray it this time because it's quite twiggy and we want it to meld all the way around the plant. And the next thing on top of the, the softened blotter is a sponge. Right now this is going to go in overnight like this with a th another layer of corrugated cardboard to suck through the air from the hot dryer. The final thing is the straps and that's just to firmly seal it. And those boards that you can hear are two wooden bars which are going to be used under the straps. They're rectangular so you slide them in flat and then you tip them on their sides and it adds extra pressure and also you can even out the pressure by using those. So there the straps are nice and tight takes a bit of effort. <laughs> right now into the dryer. Voila, that's how we press a specimen. You can find links to more information about the herbarium and its amazing collections on our programme page at rhs.org.uk slash podcast. Now, showtime! You may have seen coverage of the exciting plans for this year's Chelsea Flower Show in newspapers and on TV. The focus in 2019 is very much on the positive power of plants, health and well-being. One highlight, we hope, will be the RHS Back to Nature Garden, which is being designed as an innovative space for all generations with a real spirit of playfulness and a royal stamp of approval. 
it's going to be lovely. It's going to be a real kids' garden, you know, all the lovely things that you remember about being a child in the garden, going through logs and waterfalls and playing poo sticks and all those really beautiful things that just bring you back to nature. And that would be lovely right in the middle of London to have that in the Chelsea showground. Chelsea may be the most famous RHS flower show, but the first in the calendar is Cardiff. Bursting with floral spring colour and set in the beautiful grounds of Butte Park in the heart of Wales's capital city, this show is a perennial family favourite. Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine, caught up with the show manager to hear what's planned this year. Anna, paint us a picture of the Cardiff show, because I think it's really important to explain this is actually quite a small show, isn't it? But where in Cardiff is it and what does it feel like walking round? It is a small show. It's jam-packed, but it's in a lovely site in Butte Park, right next to Cardiff Castle, which, if you haven't been to Cardiff before, it's in the heart of the city. So it's a 10-minute walk from the train station, and Cardiff is really just over the bridge. So if you didn't know, the bridge is free now. Um, So so you can actually get there really easily, sort of from wherever you're coming from. There's all the different workshops and take-homes, and and you'll just want to spend time with all the wonderful people at the show. Um, So it's a really lovely, friendly show. And I can actually completely support what you say because it is one of my favourite shows as well. And for me, it's that start of spring. It's almost like the permission to start buying plants. And that's what I love. And you can see there's this sort of flurry of activity of people who come to Cardiff and can start buying plants and start thinking about the season ahead. Is it the plant buying that really focuses your attention? It is very much a big part of the show. People do love it. And, you know, last year we had the Beast from the East, if we, met, if we dare mutter that name. But what it meant was that people were even more in a flurry to buy their plants. And some of our traders had the most successful year they've ever had um, because people were so excited to get into spring. But it's also about the community and also about accessible horticulture. So there's so many things and inspiration and different elements of the show that get every single member of the family involved so it just really is a show that is open for everyone so you mentioned it's open for everyone and that lots of people can get things from it give us an example what sort of things do you have that really tempt the whole family so for the family part we have a wonderful thing called the family trail now this goes from show to show but it starts at cardiff which is always really exciting for me but if you don't have any kids that's fine too because what we have is an abundance of inspiration abundance of talks abundance of absolutely any kind of person that you would like to meet in the horticultural community is at the show so you can go along and chat to them so from gardens to talks to family trail to obviously the florals you're never gonna not have something to see and a food you think there's actually a great farmer's market um which is where you'll always find me by the welsh cakes <laughs> that actually is true uh, but what about the um, wheelbarrow competition because to me that is one of the really photogenic memories that you get from cardiff which is what the kids have put into the energy of creating these wheelbarrows the wheelbarrow competition is an amazing thing it's been running at the show for a few years now and it's so popular so it's over 60 schools from the cardiff area which is just amazing because if you think the children are are the garden of tomorrow so we really want to be encouraging them um, and our campaign for school gardening works very closely with the Butte Park Education Centre and so we give the schools a wheelbarrow and we give them a theme so this theme this year is um, the year of discovery so it gives them a lot to work with and you just see the most amazing creations come out in such a small pocket and then the public can vote for them so the kids are 
creating it, the parents are coming along to support, but then the public love it too, because actually, if you don't have much space, something like a little planter that you can take inspiration from the wheelbarrows is perfect. So you're actually having the kids inspiring the adults as much as anything else. One other thing I just wanted to get your opinion on and, and, and for you to explain is really the talks, because I know talks and the interaction of both our customers and the presenters is really important to you, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think when you have somebody with a certain knowledge, people are desperate to know how they tick, how they run things. And so being able to say, this is a flower show, if you have any questions about gardening, we want to be able to provide somebody who can talk to you about that. So this year, we've got some guest hosts in the Talk Theatre. And on the Friday, the first day, we welcome James Alexander Sinclair. So if you don't know, he's an RHS judge and he's a garden designer. So we're really excited to have him along at the show this year. And also, as we should explain, that he's also going to be hosting our live interactive Q&A podcast, this very podcast, which will be happening at Cardiff. And he's going to be our host for that. So it's going to be super exciting having him talking to people and people fielding questions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he's great because he's got such a wonderful sense of humour. So you can ask him any question and he will give you the most wonderful answer that you'll remember it, if not anything, because of the way that he's delivered it. He's there on the Friday and that is the Friday, the 12th of April. And the podcast is being recorded at 12 o'clock. You can find links to more details and ticket information for all RHS flower shows on the website as before. I have to say that all this show talk is making me look forward to working at them this year. Each has its own character and it's impossible to pick a favourite. The setting of Butte Park in Cardiff is perfect. There are some wonderful trees, including plenty of magnolias all in full bloom while the show is on. By Malvern, in the second week of May, spring is in full swing and you can finally say to garden-loving visitors, yep, that plant can go in now, perfect timing. It's the right time of year to do the really interesting jobs like buying and planting just when the plants are looking good and established well. There's a real feeling of excitement in the air. And that's just the first two of the season. Happy days. Finally, back to a less glamorous aspect of gardening, the blight of many veg growers' gardens. Blight. Potato or tomato, this ugly persistent disease can be hard to get rid of and is infuriating as it spreads from plant to plant. But help is at hand, as increasing numbers of blight-resistant varieties appear on the market. Matthew Cromie from the Plant Pathology Department compared notes with Chief Horticulturist Guy Barter on the best ways to beat it. Now, Matthew, we gardeners are used to seeing our potato crops disappear in a slimy mass in a week in certain times of year. It must be a pretty pokey beast, this potato blight organism. Can you tell us what it is? OK, the first thing to be careful on is to know that there are two blights of potato. There's early blight and there's late blight. It's important not to confuse early blight and late blight. Early blight is not a major problem. Late blight is, even though it can occur at different times of the growing season. So late blight is what we're interested in today. And yes, that's the one that can devastate your potato crop fairly quickly. It's caused by a fungus-like organism. It's not actually a fungus. And it tends to start on the leaves. And warm, humid conditions, which really favour this organism, can spread rapidly on the leaves. It can then move onto the stems. Spores can wash down into the, the growing tubers. And then you can end up with just a mush, which is not what you want in your crop. 
every year we scrupulously destroy all our blighted potatoes because it does turn up most years and um, every year we get blight again well where's it lurking over winter and what should we do to try and interrupt its cycle okay so that's the key thing you can't interrupt it completely especially if you have neighbors that aren't doing the same good practices as you but scrupulous garden hygiene is really important so when you're composting make sure your potato leaves are well under anything else you don't want the leaves sticking through because they can continue to produce spores you don't want to have potato tubers even tiny ones because as they grow through they can provide spores of the organism and you don't want to have a pile of old potatoes somewhere nearby or last year's ones that come through so those are the key things in your garden you can do that can bring that down a lot that can ensure that the disease or help that the disease won't turn up as quickly as it might But the thing to bear in mind is that most of infections in gardens come from windblown spores and they can come from miles away, your neighbours, but maybe even a lot further. So everything you do is reducing the likelihood of the time at which the disease will turn up. It won't prevent it. So there's other things you need to uh, consider as well. But that's a good start. I assume that commercial potato growers don't have any problems with blight. It's just us poor gardeners who suffer. I'm sure they do. There are some other weapons in the commercial growers' cabinet. One of them is that there are well-known conditions that are conducive to uh, late blight forming. Those are combinations of temperature and leaf wetness. So there are advice systems out there saying, it's a warning, now's the time to spray your crop, for instance. Of course, home gardeners can't spray their crop. So even if you know that you've got conditions in a garden for that are good for infection, you can't spray them. But you can look out for them, and there are things you can do to uh, reduce the disease, delay the disease. And what are these things, Matthew? What can we do? Well, if you keep an eye out for it, then first of all, if it's relatively early during the growing season, you can pick off those early infections. So you'll see little brown lesions starting to develop. If the conditions are humid, you'll see downy spores produced. Those are the ones that are going to spread through the rest of your crop. So Getting rid of those early on, that can delay that, that can help prevent it getting onto the stems and then down into your tubers. But if you do suddenly see a lot of it relatively late when the tubers have started to form, you can actually chop them off at the base. If you get rid of all the infected material, leave those tubers then to harden off and you've prevented those spores from washing down into the tubers. The other thing with that is that early sown varieties, they may be equally susceptible, but early potatoes generally are not at as much risk as the late potatoes. So if you're looking for disease resistance, then get as much as you can with your main crop potatoes, later planted ones. And once you've cut the tops off and your heart's in your mouth as you think your crop is going to turn to a slimy mass in store, how long do you have to leave the potatoes before you dig them out? When's it safe to slip your fork under them and bring them safely into store? Well, you want to harden them off. So it depends on the conditions, but if it's reasonably dry, if they're reasonably well formed, then that will happen probably within a week or two. Guy, you're a a keen potato grower, how long do you think it would take for them to harden off nicely? Well, um, usually you can just check, take a tuber out, you rub it with your thumb, and if the skin comes away easily, it's not ready. And when you rub it with your thumb and the skin stays firm, then the tuber is hardened off and it's best to whip them into store before the slugs get at them, for example. Mm. And of course, as you rightly observe, if you're lucky and it's not too wet in June and July, your second early potatoes and your early main crops actually mature before the blight hits them. But as we gardeners often find, it's those main crop ones that are going to produce the great big baking tubers and um, have a huge crop to fill your shed sometime in September. They're the ones that get the blight. So it's a question of managing which ones you grow. And I think gathering and keeping information is really important because 
Some will get, will be quite resistant on the, on the leaf, not so resistant on the tuber. Others will be fairly resistant on the leaf, not so resistant on the tuber. So you want to see how your potatoes look, how they grow, how they do in your climate. And it's not a bad idea to grow more than one variety. Things can change, choose your varieties, mix them up, and especially because some varieties will be resistant to some strains and not to others, by mixing things up, you've got a greater chance of a good crop. So looking to the future, do you think the situation will get better or worse? Is science making progress in battling with the Phytophthora infestans potato blight fungus-like organism? Lay blighter potato comes and goes. Resistant varieties will always be the key to managing the disease or the best way of managing the disease on the basis that you've got really good cultural management as well. So all of those things like eliminating as much of the pathogen as you can out of season. But things do change, so we need to keep on top of it. So it's more a matter of keeping on top of it than that there'll be a sudden, well, this is uh, completely solved now. Well, it sounds like we're lucky to have you and your fellow plant pathologists working on our behalf. Thank you. If you'd like to hear more expert tips on growing blight-free potatoes, why not have a listen to the February edition of our sister programme, The Garden Podcast, where Garden Magazine editor Chris Young will be interviewing plant breeder Simon Crawford. Go to rhs.org.uk slash thegardenpodcast. I'm afraid that's almost all we have time for today. There's just time for a quick reminder that the closing date for the RHS photographic competition is 10am on the 1st of March. So get snapping and upload your best pictures so you don't miss out on the chance to win some of the many thousands of pounds worth of prizes. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, enjoy the crocuses in the sunshine. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden, and all the team, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. 
Terms and conditions apply. 